Thank you all for joining us. My name is Andrea Armeni. I'm the Executive Director of Transform Finance. And um, today we're here for our webinar series exploring the impact return trade-offs in underserved communities in the Global South, what seems to be a very relevant conversation for the members and, um, and guests. Uh, as you know, this builds on some of our prior explorations. We did a webinar a while back with uh, Anair uh, from Candid Group and with uh, Greg from Kenyard. Looking overall at this, uh, at this issue, not in the old way of the, of the trade-offs, but really, um, you know, do you have to be concessionary, but in trying to dig a little bit deeper on what it means when it is that it would make sense to be concessionary or not and um, and uh, how it is that uh, some of the investors within this community are looking at that issue. Um, Anair and Greg have thought about this a lot more than, um, than I have. You will see in a moment links to some of their writings as well as uh, Marabolis' writings on this. So I will leave it to them to um, take it away. And uh, uh, meanwhile, I just want to welcome everyone and welcome our presenters for today. Again, it's uh, Anair Benami from Candid Group, Greg Nation from Kenya Earth, and um, discussing their work will be Brian Hees from One Acre Fund and Rick Beckett from uh, Global Partnerships. So Anair, I will turn it over to you. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, well, as, as Andrea mentioned, uh, you know, we have we have a couple of uh, exceptional organizations today presenting uh, with uh, global partnerships and um, one acre fund organizations that are doing sort of deep impact work in marginalized communities and and doing it at scale. And so uh, these are two organizations that we at, at uh, Candide have supported on behalf of our clients. Um, so I'll keep the framing part really, uh, really nice and, and short here. Um, you know, so primarily to uh, start by saying that, as um, you know, as, as Andrea mentioned, I, I almost feel like um, you know, framing the conversation around the impact and return trade-offs. We kind of owe you a bit of an apology <laughs> for doing so, because obviously this is a debate that's been uh, that's been done uh, again and again, and probably one of the more tired conversations in the impact space. Uh, you know, on the one hand are, are those uh, who, who are all about proving that impact should not be a drag on returns and may actually generate excess returns. On, on the other, are those who say that, well, that might be true for some investments, but it's an approach that leaves out a big part of the universe we need to be investing in. And, um, you know, as, as Andrea mentioned, if you follow some of our previous uh, webinars or some of the blog posts we've published over the, over the years, uh, you know, It'll come as no surprise to you that we uh, we've generally critiqued uh, the doing good by doing well narrative, and the and the gist of that critique was that if uh, you know if you want to address uh, poverty and and truly marginalized communities, and um, if you want to um, you know design really kind of deep systemic change solutions, uh, then you 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 can't or you probably shouldn't expect to earn very strong returns on 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 all those strategies. Um, for there, there, there's a, a couple of links to these um, blog posts here if, if you're not already familiar with them, but I'll, I'll, I'll move on. Uh, for the for the conversation today, uh, you know, we have we hope to tackle this debate from a sort of specific uh, angle to put a slightly kind of finer point on that debate. Um, so, you know, in the context of organizations like One Acre Fund, like Global Partnerships, what we're trying to do is to explore the specific. Uh, 
from an impact perspective, the specific costs that might be imposed by having to deliver certain financial returns uh, to investors in, in the context of these strategies. Uh, so we, you know, we, we asked, uh, we presented uh, Brian from One Acre Fund and uh, Rick from Global Partnership with sort of a what if question. You know, well, what if you had access to lower cost of capital? Um, you know, what, what would it allow you to do that you might not be able to, to do today? Um, so we're essentially saying, you know, it may be possible to do, uh, to do good by, um, uh, you know, to do well by doing good, but that doesn't necessarily mean we couldn't be doing more good if we did a little bit less well, right? And if we, uh, if we try to make those trade-offs more concrete, more quantifiable, uh, you know, would it affect uh, our decisions as investors, how we think about these investments? So, you know, if, for example, we knew that by earning, I don't know, 200 basis points uh, less on our, on our capital, we're able to bring solar to truly low-income customers or marginalized communities rather than middle-class middle ones, or maybe we're able to reach 20% more customers, you know, uh, really uh, trying to tease that out without, without change kind of our, our calculus as, as investors. You know, so in general, you know, when we look at, at the universe of opportunities, of, of impact opportunities, we, we try to broadly distinguish between two types of, um, of strategies. There, there are those where, um, where there is an opportunity that the market has been overlooking or ignoring or maybe slow to react to, but, um, but, but, but maybe it's, uh, you know, the, the, the market is, is sort of wrong or slow, right? There's, there's essentially an arbitrage opportunity for us as impact investors. Uh, to 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 address um, to address a, a a a need that the market is not addressing, uh, but there's also a whole a whole bunch of opportunities that um, and strategies where the market is not wrong, right? I mean, where the market isn't serving a certain community or a certain need because it really is harder or more expensive to do it, right? And I think there is just really recognizing that there are. Um, strategies that fall under both those categories. There are plenty of opportunities we think that are um, where uh, where the market is maybe wrong or mispricing risk, uh, and there is maybe sort of an arbitrage of sorts for impact investors. Or, you know, for for instance, we've recently invested in a media company that represents uh, you know, voices of and for people of color in the U.S. or or a company like um, Maven that creates new income opportunities for black hairstylists in the U.S., right? You could argue there are instances where, you know, we get to have an impact as well as capitalize on the fact that the market has been too slow or in some cases too racist to see an emerging um, voice and power and creativity in these communities. Uh, you could say the same thing for some of the uh, new clean energy uh, deployment opportunities. There are uh, companies like... Uh, generate capital that are, are identifying sort of new technologies that are ready for deployment and the market is just uh, like you know, like efficient lighting or like storage and the market might just be kind of slow to price those risks uh, appropriately and we as impact investors kind of get to uh, have our, our cake and eat it uh, too so to speak um, um, you know and there's of course there's a lot of research around um, sort of the accretive value of just good corporate social practices, right? Attracting, uh, attracting uh, better and stronger talent to your company by adopting better social practices. So there's there are a lot of investment theses that 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 are overlapping with with impact theses. 
but there are also plenty of opportunities where, where again, the market is being quite rational and, and, and that serving certain customers is just not a very profitable proposition or it's just really hard. And, 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 and that's where, that's the universe where um, our presenters our presenters today um, are, are, are operating in. Um, um, so I think those two categories may get sometimes conflated and it really is uh, an opportunity for us or, or there's a need for us to separate that nomenclature uh, or create new nomenclature that, that, that teases those categories apart very clearly. Uh, you know, they're, they're always going to be trying to kind of disassociate themselves from each other, right? Because the, the folks on the, in the, on the former category that are trying to uh, generate strong returns want to, you know, distance themselves from the notion of trade-offs that makes it hard for them to raise capital. And, and while the folks uh, that, are, that are addressing mar stru structural market failures and in a way that, that makes it really hard to generate a strong return, like, like One Acre Fund or like Global Partnerships are, are always going to endeavor to remind us investors that um, that our financial return has a real impact cost in the field. Um, so, you know, just, just to, uh, we we find that to be kind of useful framing. I mean, it's not so much kind of the impact first versus financial first. It's the does the impact uh, thesis drive uh, an investment an investment opportunity or or is it a cost, right? Um, so to talk, to talk a little bit more about that distinction and I think uh, a useful kind of nomenclature, I, we, I also invite here or I'll pass the mic on to, to Greg and I know they've uh, over at Kenyarth have done uh, some really good thinking around um, uh, teasing out those categories and making them quite distinct in their strategy. So uh, um, I'll hand it over to you, Greg, to Great. talk us through that piece. Great. Thanks, thanks Anir. Um, and uh, thanks everyone for, for joining today. I, um, I, I, I'm really excited to have the chance to, to introduce um, Brian and Rick. I, I think that One Acre Fund and Global Partnerships have been um, not only kind of investees in our portfolio, they have both really helped push our thinking um, in, in terms of the evolution of our, of our portfolio at Kenny Arth. So, um, you know, 30 seconds on us, we are a single family office. Um, we manage both a private foundation as well as various unrestricted investment assets. Our, our focus as, as an organization, both across all our assets is to invest in, in livelihoods in underserved and marginalized communities with primarily a, um, a rural focus. We've been around for about five years. We've engaged in probably 50 or 60 transactions across both direct lending to fund investing um, across a broad range of geographies. We've evaluated probably hundreds of enterprises and funds to, to get to that portfolio. So um, the, the sort of framework that we that we sort of have today is really, um, really comes out of that work and really comes out of a lot of experimentation and, um, and learning from, um, for, from doing. And I think that, um, that that learning from doing has really um, led us to a place where, where our view uh, echoes some of the things that Anir said in, in, in his introduction, which is that, that there are trade-offs between um, serving the lower income, most marginalized communities that we want to serve in responsible ways and earning comparable returns that one would earn from serving higher income communities. And as, as 
Anir alluded to, while this has become provocative in a provocative thing to say in sort of the impact investing world where everyone wants to kind of get along and be in a big tent, it's not a provocative thing to say in, in, in the business world where customer segmentation is a totally, you know, totally normal thing to do to say, hey, some, some customer segments are going to be most profitable, capital will flow, flow to those most, most efficiently, some segments one might not serve because they're just going to be harder to reach and, and, and less profitable. And, and in our case, because those are the populations that are our mission, um, we're, we're going to serve, you know, we, we aim to serve those segments regardless of their, um, their, their profitability. And I think that, um, you know, I think that what we've found in, in that work is that what we are, um, what we are not really um, sacrificing is is a view on is a view on risk, um, you know. And if you look at how we lay out our strategies in in the slide that um, that we have up here, um, we don't really, you know, there's not an axis up here that is is a return axis. Um, the way that we sort of differentiate the three strategies that we run internally um, is is really on on, on risk and then intention. So. Um, we differentiate on is this a portion of our portfolio where fundamentally we are looking at it through the lens of an investor. We're building a sort of a conventional portfolio and then layering on as much impact as we can. Or is our brain focused on there are particular things in the world that we want to solve, um, breaking down those value chains, supply chains, what have you, figuring out what those solutions are. Um, and, and then attacking those with interventions, um, kind of, you know, understanding that different interventions will have different, different sort of returns and, and, and risks. And so that really drives our, our framework. So there are essentially in our office three, three strategies, um, and you can go to the next slide. Um, you know, we really started with, um, with two of these, the two on the ends. We started with a view toward there's a whole bunch of programmatic work we want to do that's kind of, you know, deep impact. It's going to be high risk, directly aligned with um, the communities that we want to serve. Um, and, um, and a lot of that capital in, in our early days as an office was, was going out in the form of, of PRIs, because a lot of these were, were interventions that um, were sort of untested, untested pilots. And then in the meantime, in those early days, we were building out um, you know, a conventional impact investment portfolio that, um, you know, was, was weighted across uh, sort of traditional asset classes that had, um, you know, the sort of usual suspect public equity and fixed income managers from, the, from sort of the impact investing field had, had, had continues to still have private equity managers that are doing really good responsible investing um, you know, in, in the U.S. and the U.K. and, 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 and Africa and elsewhere, um, but weren't necessarily reaching the, the sort of deepest, most, um, most marginalized communities that we, that, we had hoped, um, that we had hoped to serve. And in doing this work, I think we have recognized that there's really, you know, there's really a third way in the middle um, that, um, that, uh, that says, hey, we, we can actually serve these the communities that we are targeting, we can do it in a direct way, um, 
and we can do it in a in a pretty um, a pretty sustainable way. It just requires us to have um, a, a different view on the return profile that that is going to be earned in those segments. It doesn't necessarily require us to have a different view in terms of underwriting risk. We still believe that in this third way, this this way that we call impact-led or impact-driven capital preservation, we still believe that we're going to return capital from from those investments. But it it, it does mean that we have a much um, a much lower bar in terms of of, of the return um, the return profile, and that's where we're really headed as headed toward as an office through um, you know through investing in organizations like Global Partnerships and One Acre Fund, our goal is really to rotate the vast majority of our assets um, out of the business of, of sort of basic responsible investing um, and, and into this category that we call impact-led, impact-driven. Um, and I guess, it, you know, I'll say it's, it's not, you know, it's not, a, it's not a judgment. I think the people that are, are doing great responsible investing are doing great work. They're, they're doing work in finance that's better than 98% of, of, you know, other people in finance. So it's, it's not at all a critique of what's happening in, in that field. And we're glad to see it. We're glad to see it grow. Um, I, I think our view is, is just that um, as we try to serve, uh, you know, try to serve those most deeply underserved communities and do so in a direct way, we need to find um, you know, we needed to find a, a, a different, more, you know, even more progressive way to, to deploy, um, deploy our capital. So that's, that, that's sort of a bit of a, a story of how, um, how we've uh, gotten to where we are today and how One Acre Fund and Global Partnerships fit, um, you know, fit into this, fit into our portfolio and um, looking forward to hearing, uh, hearing them talk a bit more about uh, their work. Thank you, um, Greg, and thank you, Nair, for that. And um, and as I turn it over to um, to Rick, I wanted to highlight a couple of uh, of other things that we've been um, discussing in this area. So first, uh, uh, in terms of those that join us from the more kind of post philanthropic approach to to impact, uh, you've heard us talking about the the Buen Vivir Fund, where uh, the question is, let's just completely rethink the idea of what these returns would be and the importance that the non-financial returns play on this. And it might be that we look at it from a bit of a semantic or even rhetorical perspective, but uh, just moving away from that idea of the of the concession on the return, right? Um, if, we, uh, if we tie into some of the work that we've done on the wealth inequality, the piece that I think will, will appear here is that all, uh, there is a bit of a zero-sum game in terms of who benefits from the investment returns that ties into who has the investment capital in the, in the first place to, to allocate in that way. And to the extent that there are kind of uh, alpha returns from, uh, from impact, um, looking at it from the, uh, from the angle of um, broader wealth inequality and how is this contributing to ameliorating wealth inequality if what we have is investors ultimately benefiting from the very solutions that they are creating. But with that, I will um, turn it over to, uh, to Rick from Global Partnerships. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, great to be here. I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to, to uh, chat a little bit with you all. So um, let me just start for those of you who uh, are not uh, familiar with Global Partnerships. 
So, uh, so we're a fund manager. We're an impact-led investor. Been a uh, uh, impact-led fund manager since 2005, and our our mission is to expand opportunity for people living in poverty. So, our raison d'etre is to empower poor and marginalized people in developing countries to earn a living, provide for the basic needs of their families, and uh, improve their lives. Um, kind of in a nutshell, uh, global partnerships in a nutshell, we have. 14 different impact-first or impact-led strategies across all facets of poverty. So not just earning a living where we have five different strategies, but access to basic education, clean energy, uh, decent housing, better health, essential medicines, water and sanitation. So our understanding of poverty is holistic uh, and our impact uh, investment strategies kind of reflect that understanding. Uh, we've done seven funds, four have fully matured, three are active. Uh, about 99% of our work is debt, meaning we're making working capital loans available to social enterprises in 17 developing countries that are serving uh, the, the poor and marginalized people that, that we exist to, to serve. Uh, we have a, a small social venture fund uh, that we've just launched, $5 million fund that's um, aimed at trying to demonstrate that you can do uh, very high impact work by doing seed stage investments uh, uh, and preserve capital. Uh, so we've invested almost 300 million over the last 12 years about 440 investments, uh, meaning individual loans and individual early stage investments. Um, we're in year 13. Uh, while historical performance is no guarantee of future performance, we're in the, we've delivered you know, both uh, principal return plus modest fixed income returns to 100% of our debt fund investors for the last 51 consecutive quarters. Um, and when we think about impact, we have a, a fairly rigorous um, quantitative methodology around how many lives are really um, receiving a meaningful opportunity and how much of that is attributable directly to our investments as opposed to other capital providers. So over that time period, um, have uh, our investments have led through our partners to 8.9 million lives impacted. Uh, so that's kind of global partnerships uh, in, a, in a nutshell. Uh, I think really to understand our work, um, you know, I, I like to begin these kinds of conversations with the reality of poverty as we see it and understand it. Uh, you know, when the World Bank talks about $5.50 a day and, or $3.20 a day and purchasing power parity, that's a little hard to visualize. So, you know, really everything we do starts with the reality faced by, um, by the people we serve. And this, this happens to be a client, uh, her name is Miriam, uh, at the beginning of her journey in microfinance, which is uh, some of the work we do is involved in microfinance. Um, but really, her story isn't my point. The reality that of, of her life is, is really what I want to bring some attention to. So, you know, when we, when we envision $3.20 a day, uh, you, uh, Miriam lives in this one-room home with her, uh, with her husband, her parents, and their children. Um, you can see it's a dirt, uh, dirt floor. You can ask the question, does the roof leak? They're, they're off the grid like 1.3 billion others. Um, there's no running water. That blue cistern actually in front of her house is where they gather water. And so it's open source, which is associated with all sorts of increased in, uh, risk of diarrheal disease. They cook in that, uh, in an open fire in that uh, repurposed oil drum on the left. Um, there's no improved sanitation. So, you know, when we think about poverty, we're thinking about not just trying to create the opportunity for people like Miriam to earn a living, but also to address with sustainable solutions as many of these facets of poverty that we can. And our contention is that, um, that there's this zone 
between traditional philanthropy, and there's just not nearly enough of it, and commercial markets, which we're fully supportive of, but tend not to reach this deep and tend not to address all these facets. So there's this band of people and solutions that, uh, to our way of thinking, are, 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 not, um, are not really systematically reached and included, and that's, that's where we want to focus. So when, so when we think about what do we mean by opportunity, what do we mean by uh, impact-led or impact-first, uh, for us it has, it has four dimensions. Um, the first is this notion of broadening opportunity. So what are all the facets of poverty that lend themselves to a sustainable approach? Because if it doesn't cash flow and it's not sustainable, you can't invest in it at all. Um, and, and can we address as many of those facets of poverty uh, for Miriam and people like her as, as we can? The second is this notion of deepening inclusion. So we are uh, intentionally trying to operate at the edge of the market where sustainability is possible, um, but, it, but inclusion is limited. So when we think about uh, who is marginalized, that, tends, that includes certainly uh, how poor people are, um, but also often includes gender. It can include people who are marginalized by rural uh, geography because uh, the last mile economics are so difficult in rural markets. Uh, it can include people marginalized by ethnicity uh, or language. Um, so we envision uh, a suite of sustainable solutions which are deeply inclusive and we're trying to expand the range, uh, you know, the depth, if you will, uh, where sustainable solutions can, can operate. You know, the third for us is this notion of scale. Um, you know, we're interested in, uh, if we're going to make a dent in 3 billion people living under $3.20 or almost 6 billion living under $5.50, we need to be thinking about uh, opportunities and, uh, and solutions at scale. And so we're looking for things that because of sustainability can, can serve millions of people. Some of our early roots as a grant making foundation were in the world of microfinance where we spent about a dozen years. Um, and I think you know, one of the things that, uh, there are lots of uh, issues around microfinance, but one of the things that I think is terrific about it is that it, it demonstrated that if you achieve sustainability, you can scale and serve millions of people. And, and uh, we took that lesson to heart. And the, the last dimension for us is, um, is improving lives. So every one of our 14 investment impact-led strategies has a specific thesis, not just about which marginalized people are being served by, but what, is, what are the dimensions of impact that we can expect to see? Uh, and that varies, uh, you know, that's unique to each of the 14 and all. I'll talk about uh, two or three examples here today. Um, but the, you know, when we think about being impact-led, those are the four dimensions. We're trying to make sure that every one of our investments is performing across all four of those, of those dimensions. Um, so, um, so to this point of, uh, you know, what do we see in terms of um, the difference? What difference does it really make, uh, is really made between return-led capital and, and impact-first or impact-led capital? Um, and I think the, the, the point that, uh, that I would make, at least what our experience has taught us, is that economic incentives are incredibly powerful. And uh, that's true not only with return-led equity, it's also true with return-led debt. It's just economic incentives are powerful. And, um, and while certain uh, great things can be accomplished with um, purely commercial markets, there are, there are some limits and there are some predictable things that, uh, that return-led that those economic incentives do. And, and essentially it boils down to affecting, uh, in many cases, who gets served, what gets delivered, and then what the resulting impact is. So let me, um, let me try to bring that to life a little bit by sharing three examples uh, out of our, so these are uh, three of our 14 
impact-led investment strategies and just talk through a little bit what we see in terms of how the incentives associated with different kinds of capital, what, what, they, what it does. So the first example of uh, smallholder farmer, farmer inputs with technical assistance. So you're going to hear a lot about this from Brian because One Acre Fund is a terrific example of an organization doing this. Um, this is one of our four, 14 uh, investment strategies. So really, you know, you've got hundreds of millions of people, uh, of families, billions of people relying on agriculture, many of them subsistence farmers for their livelihood. Um, what we see in that market is that if you want to serve the, the poor, the marginalized population there, those tend to be subsistence farmers as opposed to farmers with cash crops. They tend to, they, they're less likely to own their land. They tend to not have a lot of assets to secure. Um, uh, if you're going to help them, it really comes down to getting very small amounts of the right kind of inputs along with technical assistance in terms of how to use those inputs to increase their yields. And then ideally that combined with some kind of market access so they have a place, not only uh, they can use some of their crop to feed their family and they can use um, uh, the rest of their crop to sell into a, a local market. Um, the challenge there, if you look at where return-led capital tends to flow in, in uh, agriculture, it tends to focus on larger farms or larger farmers. It tends to focus on farmers with assets, uh, certainly landowners. It tends to focus on um, farmers who do not need the technical assistance or education, which is expensive to deliver, uh, about necessary to increase yields and increase crop quality. Uh, and so the fundamental economics of reaching the poor and more marginalized farmers, as well as the wraparound services, not just the small amounts of credit that they need for inputs, but the wraparound, the expenses of delivering the wraparound services, um, that just doesn't go in hand in hand with profit maximization. Uh, you make less money on small farmers, the loans are small, the wraparound services are expensive. And so what we see in this thesis with One Acre Fund and others is that um, that there is there def, there's a, a very clear trade-off between the inclusion and the, the service delivery that we see maximizes yields and decreases hunger with, with the kind of capital that's, with, that's being delivered. So that's an example uh, out of our, from our 14 strategies of, of smaller farmer inputs with TA. We see uh, oftentimes, we see the exact same trade-offs, the trade-offs on inclusion and trade-offs on the service design or product design across each of our initiatives. So um, in the world of microfinance, uh, I'm, I'm sure many on this call are familiar with it. Uh, commercialization has done some great things, certainly driven a lot of growth um, in both access to credit, but also access to other profitable financial services. Um, so uh, that's all to be applauded. There also is a persistent gap in financial inclusion at the lower end. You just don't see the same growth at the lower end. And you see a persistent gap in inclusion of women. Um, which is uh, not only uh, a problem from a, a pure inclusion point of view, but there's a growing body of evidence in the, in the global development space that about the power of getting economic and educational opportunity into the hands of women. It's not just what happens in their lives, what women choose to do with economic resources in terms of providing for their families and the choices they make is a multiplier effect uh, in terms of the impact that's being achieved. So um, this is an example of what we call women-centered finance with education. Our experience is that um, if you want to reach poor and marginalized women, this, this example actually is uh, a group of indigenous women in the highlands of Guatemala 
who are marginalized not only by depth of poverty, but by gender, by geography, by ethnicity, and by the fact that their first language is indigenous. So the economics of reaching this kind of population with small loans uh, is really difficult. And, um, and, and what we see is that the commercially, more commercially oriented capital this may look like a car, but it's not a car, because we don't make just cars. We make technology that moves people. This is the all-new Nissan LEAF, featuring Nissan Intelligent Mobility with tech like ProPilot Assist that is reinventing driving and changing the way we commute. Now the most exciting tech you own is in your driveway. Uh, and it takes a lot of patience. Uh, it, you know, you, you uh, for the women for whom it works, it takes. You hear about slavery for 400 years? For 400 system. years? That sounds like a choice. Uh, and and, and, and um, economic resources in the hands of these women that allow them to better feed their families, send more kids to school, etc. So what we see in the in the area of microfinance, despite its maturity, is that commercial capital tends to focus on the larger loans. Um, it, that it's not driving the gender inclusion we would like to see. And the profit margins associated with coupling credit with education are lower because you're, if you're using portfolio yield to fund additional services, in this case, financial literacy and business education, you, uh, you, you just don't see the incentives aligned if we're talking about return-led capital. Um, so the, the, third, um, the, the, the third strategy where I, we see the same things uh, going on are, are in the whole clean energy, particularly solar space. There's, uh, I mean, lots of impact investors are focused on the 1.3 billion people living off the grid, about a billion of them being very poor. Um, typically, the way that debate gets, or that discussion gets framed is around the energy ladder uh, with the notion that people are, want to, which they certainly do, and will move up the energy ladder. And, and what we see is that um, the profit margin, it's a lot easier to make money on the higher ticket items. It's a lot easier to make money uh, in urban environments with larger home systems or, uh, or uh, solar solutions that are kind of further up the energy ladder. The economics are tougher if you're talking about um, Pico lights in rural environments for off-grid families who have very little disposable income. Uh, and, uh, but the impact is, 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 uh, is very high. Um, the kerosene substitution economics are compelling for small solar lights. Um, and, if, and the issues around time savings, particularly for women and girls, and safety associated with having light are real. And, and yet the, the economic incentives play out the same way in solar that they do, that they do in women-centered finance and in smaller farmer, uh, our far, smaller farmer work. Um, so what, what we've come to conclude is that um, if, if, we, if we're going to see a world with the kind of social impact that we aspire to see, uh, we really need an all of the uh, all of the above approach. We're fully supportive of commercial lending with market-based solutions with uh, traditional risk-adjusted financial returns, driving the markets to do as many good, impactful, and inclusive things as they can. And we're really focused on this band where the economics are different. The economics of inclusion and the economics of the products and services are different um, in terms of achieving the outcomes that we want to see for the people that we, that we want to serve. Uh, so that, that's, that's been our experience. Um, and as I, uh, the other thing that uh, Honor and, and Greg uh, and Transform asked me to just speak um, a little bit to um, 
is uh, a couple of questions around where do we see impact-led capital emerging and, and the investors that we work with, how, how do we, what do we see and how do we think, of, what do we see them thinking about? Um, you know, uh, so we've, because we've now worked with impact-led investors, in, those investors in our funds for, since 2005. Um, and what, what we're seeing is that um, this discussion is, uh, is, is broadening uh, a bit, uh, and there are really four different segments, if you will, to Greg's earlier point about segmentation, where we, where we see this. Um, we work actively with development financial institutions, and uh, our experience with DFIs is that uh, the bulk of what they do is generally developmental finance, but each, each of them, or most of them, have recognized through the years of their work that there is this economic trade-off when you're talking about deep inclusion and deep impact. And they either have a separate asset allocation or different kinds of pricing flexibility um, to be supportive and investing in work where, uh, where those are the characteristics. Uh, the second segment where we see this um, discussion going, uh, and uh, investment going on is with a subset of religious investors. Um, that's particularly true uh, in, uh, in our experience with uh, Catholic orders where the social justice tradition runs very deep and they've been doing this kind of investing for years before the term impact investing was coined. Um, but also- I think I'm in a strong place and than I ever, than I from their fixed income portfolio. After the, um, the breakdown, we see this, I like to see uh, the breakdown. Because we're in uh, the fixed what do you, what income do you, asset class, think, uh, cause and, the mental and have the track record that I've described. Fear, um, stress, Our experience is that this control, is not limited being to the patients That actually the MRI allocations are relevant as well. Uh, that tip, That's, I think, in, in some measure due to the fact that the the difference in financial risk-adjusted financial returns when you're talking about debt are different than when you're talking about equity. Uh, but we see a lot of foundations thinking about this, not just in their PRIs, but with their MRIs. Um, and then uh, we work with a lot of high net worth individuals who are trying, uh, and, and whether that's coming out of a single family office or out of donor advised funds or out of fixed income allocations, out of foundations, um, what we see is that um, typically folks who uh, their experience is, uh, their lived experience is telling them that there's a trade-off on what they care about. Uh, and when that becomes true, um, they, they're, the thinking evolves. So in terms of what impact-led investors are thinking about, at least what we see in here, um, we, we see more and more people, uh, investors, uh, thinking about a continuum of capital rather than thinking about it in dualistic terms. Um, so rather than uh, uh, return-led or, uh, or, you know, all impact, that there is this continuum you heard Greg describe, uh, you know, Kenny Ott's version of it. But uh, we hear that a lot, and, and the discussion is evolving in our experience to not just to asset allocations across, uh, allocations across asset classes, be it private equity, real estate, or whatever, but, but really evolving to think about um, what is going to be finance first? Is there, in fact, an impact first allocation? Are there recoverable ways of thinking about my philanthropy all the way over to pure philanthropy? And you know, what we're seeing is that that continuum is starting to get populated by more and more uh, experiences, and and that and that the this segment of the market with that this segment of allocation of capital is just is uh, in its early stages, uh, which is from my standpoint uh, exciting because. Um, 
because as, again, as we think about the 3 billion people living under $3.20 and our, um, our experience with the economics of reaching them, the larger this cap, this market gets, I think the more work we'll be able to do. The final thing I would say on, on trade-offs is it, um, we're now investing in all, close to 70 partners in, in 17 countries. Um, and that trade-off that we, we see our partners making, it's not just about who gets served and what gets delivered, as I've described in those three examples. Um, we see partners who actually uh, stop growing at certain rates of capital. Uh, and we see that in small in some of our smallholder farmer work. We've seen that in some of our women-centered finance work in Sub-Saharan Africa. They just have a, a, a limit in terms of what their economic models are and, and what their cost of capital can be. That that is particularly difficult in markets where with volatile FX. Um, uh, so it's related to both what the cost of capital is and the cost of hedging is. But the point is that you know if we if you have partners who don't have access to any capital to grow, they're not serving more people, um, whether that's working capital for inputs for smallholder farmers or whether it's loans to uh, group lending to very uh, poor women with uh, combined with education, uh, and that and so we're just seeing the social performance um, slow because the capital market isn't aligned. Uh, so let me um, let me. Uh, end with that and I know that um, Brian is going to speak next about some of the great work that One Acre Fund is doing and maybe uh, we, we can come back to questions or, or whatever um, you know at, at that after we're all through. Thanks. Yeah, thanks uh, Rich. We'll, um, yeah, well, I'll hand it over here to Brian in a, in a minute. I think just a, a, you know, a quick comment which, which uh, what I think is really interesting about, uh, about this uh, conversation, this presentation, in the context of global partnerships, is that you know, you're at, so much of your work is actually in the very sectors that have seen probably the most the most commercial capital flowing into emerging markets, right? Microfinance, solar lighting, those are uh, probably the most uh, often sort of mentioned and quoted as the kind of poster children of. Um, commercial opportunities and kind of doing good by uh, doing well by doing good in those markets. So it's just interesting to see how even in those um, markets that are, are viewed as very uh, appealing to investors, uh, by approaching them with kind of a different lens, uh, you're you know you are seeing where the where the trade-offs uh, exist. Um, well, I, uh, Rick, uh, I was going to actually kind of maybe uh, turn one question back to you, um, which was the that kind of what if framing. I don't know if, if you have thought about, and I know you are thinking for your next fund, how it could differ and how you could drive cost of capital potentially further down. Um, and as you do that, what do you what do you see that enabling you doing? I mean, enable you to do. Um, um, you know, are there other strategies out there that you kind of wish you could support uh, or maybe not able to with your current uh, capital structure? Um, you know, what does reducing getting yeah. your, your cost of capital down 100 basis points mean? What is, what, can, can you hear me? Is my mic on? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, so uh, yeah, I appreciate the question. I, I think um, a couple of things. First of all, there are uh, a large number of partners we actually uh, – I think you're alluding to our um, to our seventh pet fund, which is kind of on the drawing board. 
So we have um, 60 social enterprises that are engaged uh, in, in a pipeline uh, that are addressing one of the four, one or more of the 14 different impact-led investment strategies that we have, which need capital and that uh, are capped in terms of what they can afford to. Uh, so by dropping the cost of capital by um, about 200 basis points, which is what we're talking with uh, investors about, um, there's a pipeline of 60 social enterprises that are waiting to get capital to grow uh, and are, are only going to be able to do that uh, in the context of a lower cost of capital. So that, that's thing one. And of course, why does that matter? It matters because um, they have the opportunity to not, not only deepen their serv uh, service to these marginalized populations that I've described, but grow and serve more people. Um, so I, I think that that really is the crux of it. Um, the second is really, uh, you know, more more on the um, on the upstream side than the downstream side. You know, I, I my sense is that this is a really important segment to begin to open up. Uh, and my hope would be that um, that there there are a growing number of investors who have some impact first allocation. Uh, not just because they can invest through global partnerships, but, uh, but for the field. Um, and so I think we're trying to put some, uh, design something which, um, and prove uh, that you can deliver deeply inclusive, highly scaled, clear social impact, uh, and that that kind of opens up, uh, opens up a segment in the capital market. Um, the, the third thing I would say is that I think part of, there's a, there's a, a fair quid pro quo if investors are going to provide um, impact first capital with capital preservation, I, I think uh, the, the quid pro quo is there needs to be um, clarity and better uh, uh, progress in terms of measurement of, of what, do we, what do we mean by breadth of, in our case, what do we mean by breadth of opportunity, by inclusion, and is it getting delivered by uh, not just by scale uh, of scale, but uh, customer feedback in terms of the results that they're actually seeing. And so I think uh, we would envision creating a, a virtuous cycle over the life of that fund in terms of clear and clear impact, uh, which uh, it, it's never going to happen overnight, but we need to keep at it and we need to keep bringing that clarity back to, back to investors so that they are increasingly confident over time that, that their allocation is achieving the blended value that they're seeking. Um, so those are some of the things that we're that we're talking about with this uh, with this seven fund. Okay. All right. So yeah, we'll we'll hand it over to to, to Brian uh, now, which uh, you know, kind of working one one uh, step downstream from global partnerships. Right. Well, global partnership works through intermediaries, uh, not directly lending to the uh, to the household level. Um, you know, one acre um, works uh, directly with with the farmers, so it's kind of an interesting uh, different part of the value chain. All right, well, um, this is I really appreciate the opportunity for everyone to give me the the chance to speak about this. This is a really fascinating topic, and and I wanted to start by by just describing a little bit about one acre funds model, and then looking at some of the trade offs that we face in terms of of the types of capital that we that we choose to get, as well as the type of that's really available to us. And, and I love to, to just focus first of all on this picture of Joy uh, Kamba in Kenya. Um, Joy is one of our farmers and she, you can see just the look of calm confidence on her face. And, and she's holding in her hand a hoe that she uses to farm the field that grows the food that feeds her family. And, and she's just one of a few farmers that One Acre Fund has the privilege of serving throughout the course of our, uh, of our operations in Sub-Saharan Africa. 
So One Acre Fund, I'll tell you a little bit about One Acre Fund to start with. You know, we're, we're a nonprofit organization that serves smallholder farmers. Even though we're a nonprofit 501c3 here in the United States, we really operate much like a business. And we're scaling rapidly. We currently serve about 600,000 farmers. We want to double that over the next about three or four years or so. And that, that is, it's very important that we double it because 70% of the world's poor are engaged in a single profession, which is, which is farming. And they are growing food on about an acre of land. As you can see, Oriella and Anna here um, doing that. And, and the problem is they're not growing enough food to feed themselves. And so the, um, if you travel in East Africa, you'll meet, you'll meet a lot of people. They're very friendly um, to, to people coming to see them. And, and if you talk to them for a while, you'll find out that, that their, their middle name is based on the season that they were born in. And many of them have the middle name of Wanjala, which is hunger season, which is a time of meal skipping that occurs after last year's crop has run out. And this year's crop um, hasn't really grown to the point where you can harvest it yet. And then in Kenya, that actually happens between now and the period of late April through the end of, through the end of June. But it's different in each country that we work in. And so when you think about one acre fund, I think it's important to think about the types of clients that we have. And our, our general client is, is, is shown here. I mean, Anne is, is very representative of the overall landscape within which we operate. You know, she's a mother of six, of six people, and she's got a, uh, um, a husband who works, and together the income that they bring in isn't enough to allow them to buy food 100% of the time year-round. And so they grow food on their own family farm in order to uh, feed themselves and their families. And, and we're operating, as I said, in sub-Saharan Africa, but we, we are operating even more so in, in six countries and, and one more, which we just started, which is Zambia. And the, um, the, the, what we do is we essentially have a, a four-component model that we put together that involves a financing, distribution, training, and market facilitation, which is which is the, really the process of getting goods and selling it to up to here in Africa and then trading them and how to use it. So I'll go through each step of the model so you, so you can understand it a little bit better. So financing is a very important element of, of what we do. Customers pay a small deposit to, to purchase goods and then we, we take their order and we are, are accumulating their orders um, into, into large sizes and we're buying in bulk. And we're selling it to farmers during that time of hunger that I referred to earlier, and we're selling it to them on credit. And that's important because at the time when they, when they need the goods the most, because you have to plant at a specific time in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, they don't have the money or the, or the, um, um, or the access to, to those types of products that they need to grow successful amounts of food. The second element of our, of, our, of our model involves distribution. And this is a map of, of Rwanda. And you can see that the, the gold stars represent market access points before One Acre Fund came along. And, and most farmers lived, say, within about 30 kilometers of that, of that area. And so, you know, if you had to carry a 50-kilogram a, a bag of fertilizer 30 kilometers, I mean, we all know that would be incredibly difficult to do. And when you, when you take that into the mountain roads of Rwanda, it, it becomes exceedingly difficult, right? So our, our, our value add is that we actually um, d 
developed all these different market points where, where farmers can come into us and stop the goods that we sell them. And those market points are represented on the map by these push pins that we've, that we've shown you. And so each farmer now lives within um, probably about a quarter mile of the push point. And so they're, they're not traveling very far to, to get the high quality seed and fertilizer that we sell them. When we buy in bulk, we actually ship it to our warehouses first. And this is a picture of one of our warehouses in Kenya. And you can see on the sides, it's got, it's got fertilizer stacked up along the side and seeds in the middle of it. And what we do is, is once we get into the, into, the, into the warehouses, we're then gonna deliver it by hand um, to the farmers. So we're gonna load it on trucks. You see people taking it off the trucks here and, and carrying it out to distribution access points. And we're going to um, do that on, on you know, thousands of sites during the growing season so that farmers don't have to go very far to get this stuff. And input delivery is a very, is a very happy time, I think, for farmers. And, and that Francois, you see the smile on, on her face here is, is, is representative of that because you know, she knows that this is a chance for her to start you know, new growth and to start to develop the food, the food seedlings that will, that will feed her family in a few months. So, you know, Rick commented a little bit on the training element, and this is, this is core to what we do. You know, um, many farmers are, are not using modern agronomic practices to, to plant their, their seed and fertilizer and, so, uh, and use their fertilizer. And so training on, the, on how to use the products properly and how to use them in, in minute doses so that they add the most value is, is incredibly important. And so this is a picture of Carlene and Carlene's actually showing somebody how far to place the plant stalks uh, apart in a field to get maximum access to sunlight, maximum access to nutrients, and allow it to grow to its fullest potential. And we're repeating trainings like this all throughout the growing season. They cover everything from, um, you know, how to how to uh, how to uh, repay the loan, to good agronomic practices, to our last set of trainings involves involves crop storage, and and that's important because, you know, imagine you're a farmer and, and you purchased goods from One Acre Funds, and you've you've had a very successful harvest, but at the time when when you come to market with your food, everybody else is coming to market as well, and you know simple economics apply in these areas of the world as well, such that if supply is very very high, price is going to be very very low, and so. Crop storage training is one of our most valuable things that we add because what it allows a farmer to do is to store their crops so that they can eat it later on or sell it later on at a higher price when there isn't quite so much supply on the market. And this is, this is um, it, it's, it's you know, based really in scientific principles about how much moisture needs to be in the crop that's stored. And, it's, and we use, and certain products that we sell enable a farmer to store their, their, their harvest in a special bag so that, so that bugs and weevils and mold doesn't get in. I mentioned at the start that we sell, we sell our goods on credit. And this is very important because, yeah, as I said, the farmers don't have the money initially to pay us back. But they have to pay us back 100% by the end of the growing season. And year in and year out, we're collecting about 98% of the, of the repayments that the farmers are the credit that we afford to farmers. And this is, you know, a 2% loss rate is, would be enviable in any banking sector 
that's serving the, the, the lowest common denominator um, in, in the market. And, and we've been able to reproduce that for, for you know, pretty much since inception. And in the years where, you know, as we all know, agriculture is not, not a, a stable profession. And so in the years where, the, you know, the, the weather doesn't cooperate or anything like or or a drought happens or a pest comes in, we actually have crop insurance to protect the farmer um, so that in the event they don't repay, the, insure, the insurer will actually repay us if there's been a weather event. So that's, that's our approach. You know, it, it echoes a lot of the things that I think you heard from Rick. You know, it's a, it's a combination of selling goods and providing financing, but also providing significant amounts of training. And in our opinion, just to echo Rick's comment, I, you know, it, everything has to be provided together because if you don't, you know, if you don't have, um, if you don't offer the products close to farmers' doors, they're not gonna, they're just not gonna go get them. Um, if they're, you know, if you don't offer training, it's not, it's not a way to, to maximize the usage of the product. And, and, you know, if you don't show farmers the, the, the economics and, and, the, and the practices of drawing, then I think, you know, it's like it, it doesn't allow them to, to achieve the greatest impact from the work that we're doing. And so we've intentionally built a model that, that relies on both, you know, revenues and grants. I mean, we're a nonprofit organization. And so, you know, grants are, are very, very important to us. And, you know, farm revenues cover about 70% of the cost of the core program, but grants cover the remainder, all, the, all that training charges that, that – uh, um, training costs that I mentioned earlier. But then grants also cover a lot of other stuff as well that we do as a, as a nonprofit organization. You know, we're partnering, we're partnering with governments in, in many countries um, because, because that allows us to reach more farmers. That's, that's covered by, by grants. Um, grants also cover a lot of the R&D effort we have, you know, to, um, to work with different seed varieties or to um, uh, test the soil quality to figure out which, which the best, what are the best practices of fertilizer that, that can be used in the areas that we, that we work with farmers. You know, a great example of a grant-funded activity is, is tree planting. And, you know, this is a picture in Western Rwanda. And you can see that the, the crops are growing in the, in the foreground. And you can see in the back that, that farmers have cleared a lot of land, to, you know, as, frankly, you and I would if we were growing food, right? If we were hungry, we'd need to grow food we would cut down some trees to, to feed ourselves too, I'm sure. But as we all know now, this is, this is a, um, you know, this is harmful to the, the environment, it's harmful to the soil quality. And so in every package that we sell to farmers, we include either tree seeds in some countries, or in Rwanda, we actually include tree seedlings. So last year in Rwanda, we planted three million trees um, uh, to help restore the soil quality and improve the environment. And overall, across the whole organization, we feel that um, 8.6 million trees for the quality of the, of the soil and to improve the environment. You know, impact investors get involved in, in debt in our organization purpose than the farmer revenues and the, and, the, um, and the grants that I just discussed. You know, debt is essentially being used to help us manage the timing gap. And our timing gap comes up because you know, we just have a very long cash conversion cycle, right? We have, um, we, we buy our goods so that we can get them to the, to the farmers uh, probably three to six months before we actually distribute them to farmers because we have to have them travel, you know, inter international sea routes and then have them shipped over land 
from Mombasa to the areas where we work. Um, this, this page shows like the timeline, for example, in Kenya, you know, we're buying the goods in September, we're distributing to farmers in January to March, and farmers are completing their repayment by the, uh, by the end of September. You know, so all in all, that leads to a cash conversion cycle of, of roughly, you know, about four months or so, because farmers are paying us off a little bit at a time during the, during the long growing season. And the work that we do is very impactful. You know, you can see the picture here. I mean, not only is the, there, there are more ears of corn after, after a farmer um, uses the, the goods that we sell, but the ears of, ears of maize are actually much bigger as well. And, and we're very much focused on data and measurement. And so we measure, we measure our impact in terms of how much income the farmer has as a result of buying our products. And last year we, we, we um, did some studies and we found that farmers had about a 60% increase in their farm family income as a result of buying the products that we sell. And, and the money that they, that they earned was invested in the, in the community where, where they all live. You know, they're buying, they're paying for school fees. They're, they're you know, starting new businesses. They're, um, you know, paying in some cases for health care and, and buying more nutritious food. I mentioned, you know, our scale. Um, we, we really want to grow from 600,000 farmers today. We think we'll serve 900,000 by the end of the year and over 1.3 million by 2020. And that's possible because we have a repeatable model that we, that we develop. You know, every field officer we hire um, sells the same package of goods to farmers in countries, and we have about a 200 farmer to, to one field officer ratio on average. And, and since the farmers have on average, you know, four to five people in the family, we're actually, you know, believe we're clearing, um, helping the farmers grow their way out of poverty, you know, in the tunes of about, you know, each, each field officer can, can benefit the lives of about 1,000 people. And, you know, one of the people that, that gets benefited from that is somebody like Conrad. Now, he was a farmer that joined us in, in 2012. He wasn't growing, he was growing about maybe five acres of maize on his land. And in his first year working with us, he nearly doubled that. And in his second year, he nearly tripled that. And that was, that was really good because his family all of a sudden had food that they could, that they could eat. And he actually had an extra income. And so when you, uh, when you talk to Conrad, you find out that he actually started a second business on top of his regular business, growing tomatoes with some other people in the neighborhood who were also one-acre fund farmers. And they, they ended up, um, you know, growing their, their developing greenhouses, which is what's shown here, and now they're up to about 600 different plants in their, in their greenhouses. And this has been a tremendous, you know, a tremendous second income for him. He's actually started a, another business now on poultry rearing, and, you know, when you, talk to, when you talk to Conrad, he says, you know, without One Acre Fund being around, um, I wouldn't have had this extra income to start these businesses, and my family wouldn't, wouldn't be as well fed. And so, you know, this is a model that is, is as I said, it's farmer and grant funded, right? And, and it's important to understand, you know, I think as an, as an impact investor, um, what are the trade-offs that we see in, in our operations? Well, you know, one of the questions we often get is, could you get, a could you get a fertilizer company to subsidize your purchase of fertilizer? And that's actually a difficult thing to do because if we, if we undercut the markets for fertilizer, then, then we're not really using a market-driven approach. And we think that that's really, really important. Um, 
Our, our donors, on the other hand, are, are already funding about 30% of the, of the cost of, of all the training and the other services that we provide. And, and you know, the farmers themselves don't have a, uh, um, a significant amount of extra money to pay. I mean, they're, they're you know, maybe earning, you know, $600 a year, maybe a little bit more. And, and you can't really get more money out of, out of that in that market. For, you know, our average transaction size is about $80. is already a significant percentage of their, um, of, their, of their annual income. We obtain debt from a lot of different sources. And um, I would say that all of our investors are, are impact-focused. You know, it's, it's, there's, there's differences in rates because different people have different costs of capital. I would describe about maybe you know 19% of our total portfolio of debt is is um, at the very lowest cost, but you know there's in in addition to providing you know the, the extreme lowest cost of capital, there's definitely other ways to get involved, right? You could um, you can see on the right that our our weighted average maturity of our debt portfolio is very very short. So you know offering a longer term longer term debt that's that's very valuable for us because it, it saves us from an efficiency standpoint so we don't have to renew loans every year. And also it, it helps us, it helps us um, alleviate our overall liquidity risk. Another example would be providing a revolver. You know, we, uh, um, have, we have a lot of term debt, but our, but our cash flows given the working capital cycle fluctuate. It's, it's exceedingly difficult for us to find a revolver. So that's another way um, when a true revolver that we can use the money when only when we need it without a commitment fee, that's that's another that's another example of, of where we could do more good if we got um, the right type of capital in the organization. And so, you know, I guess that that leads to kind of the the, the closing comments. You know, is 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 how much more good could we do if we got the right type of capital at the right rates? And I think that comes down to to several things. It's not it's not just the rate that you pay, as I said. You know, it's it's really understanding how our hybrid social enterprise model um, works and is designed to be safe for everybody. I mean, we 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 purposely you know build this model so that farmers are insulated from the risk by having the ability to pay us back over the course of the entire growing season in amounts you know that they, that they can afford um, over a six or seven month process. We have a diversified revenue model, for example. Um, our debt is going to fund, you know, very, very good, um, high-quality current assets. Our farmer receivables are, are, you know, insured. Our inventory, when it's in the warehouse, it's insured against peril. Um, so taking the time to really understand that model is, is helpful. And I think that, you know, every time that you make an impact investment in an organization like One Acre Fund, what you're really doing is serving people. And, you know, just if you think about, like, like let's look at a million dollar loan for example. If you take that million dollar loan, and we're not buying a productive asset with that. What we're doing is we're actually parsing that out to to a thousand farmers, and and or excuse me, ten thousand farmers, and you know buying the the quality goods that they need to that they need to live on and to to solve the issue of hunger. And if you think about four or five people in each family, you know each investment that you're making is is you know helping enough people to fill a, a stadium. You know, it's filling Madison Square Garden, for example. And, and though that type of scale is, is it's hard to get in many places. But with One Acre Fund and with other impact-led organizations, you can really do that. 
and and I think that you know every interest point that we that we save every hundred basis points that we save on our on our interest cost allows us to reach more people as well. So you know it's it's a multifaceted it's a multifaceted approach that we that we have, and we're you know really excited to to you know partner with anybody who can help us solve the issues that we face. So let me pause there and uh, and turn it back over to to Anair for uh, to lead the Q and A. Um, yeah, thank you. Awesome, Brian. Um, what um, you know, what, what's really interesting about this, I think, is how uh, going back to the point Greg made at the beginning, which is that um, you know you may be giving up uh, return with some of these uh, strategies, but um, but there, you don't necessarily um, you're not necessarily taking on more risk. And what's more, I think, kind of seeing um, seeing your strategy at One Acre Fund and, 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 and global partnerships as well and and the extremely and kind of surprisingly really low uh, delinquency rate. I, I, I can't quote off the top of my head, uh, Rick, on, on, on your end, but I, I remember it being uh, extraordinarily low. Um, it, at that part, the, the low risk or the de-risking part really does, uh, is in lockstep with the impact, right? It is it it is actually driven by what you're doing, uh, um, your proximity to the markets, the way you, um, the technical assistance, the, uh, the the close work with with farmers. So that's that, that that's interesting, right? So there's a, there may impact might not be driving returns here. There's a cost on the return side, but but it is driving uh, um, low lower risk. It is it is reducing risk. Um, so a quick uh, gonna. Um, a couple of questions here that that uh, came up, and, and then I'll, I'll open the mic up too. Um, question here for One Acre Fund: um, One, are there are there uh, have you learned from the farmers kind of certain farming practices from some farmers you've worked with that you can then um, that you can then help spread to the rest of the community or to the other farmers? Uh, are there sort of lessons from the field that you're then Filtering through the fund to the other farmers, and then also uh, related kind of what, what is the cost of capital or the interest rate that the farmers pay, um, which gets to sort of the question of it's not it, it, so the low the the lower your cost of capital, obviously the lower you know the, you can you can pass that on to the farmers, but um, you know, the, the, that's one piece. But I wonder if there's also another piece around just enabling you to do other things with those farmers so current services you're you're offering yeah. okay so i think one of the things to to emphasize on on the on the learnings that we have is that you know we're an incredibly transparent company and um organization really and we are um dedicated to not only taking the the, the things that we learn but also sharing that knowledge with as many people as possible. And so it's it's really rare that we have any learnings that are considered organization. You'll see us publish on our website. You'll see us publish impact reports. We're very – we try to be as transparent as possible about everything. And um, one of the things that, that you find when we go into a new area is that um, we actually um, – improve the yields on both farmers who work with us and also farmers who are nearby who don't who don't necessarily work with with one acre fund because you know at farmers are, are incredibly smart and they are you know very focused on 
um, you know, seeing what their neighbors do. And if they see their neighbor doing something different, they're gonna, they might try that, that approach too. And so what we find over the years is that, is that um, the, 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 the tide actually lifts for all farmers as well. And, and we think that's a good thing um, because, you know, we're trying to solve the problem of hunger around smallholder farmers. So um, I think the second question you asked is, is you know, what type, of, what type of rate are we charging to the farmers? And, and what we're really doing is since we're, since we're not providing a, um, uh, a cash loan to the farmers, we're selling goods on credit, you know, we're operating on, a, on really more of a gross margin kind of basis. And so our gross margin tends to be about uh, maybe a little bit less than 30%. In some countries, it's a little bit higher. And in some countries, it's a little bit lower because um, the government will actually set controls on the prices of the goods that we sell. Um, but but in all cases, it's a positive gross margin. And, you know, it, it tends to be, um, you know, that 28 to 30 percent has tended to be, be relatively sticky. I mean, I think it was a little bit higher um, a few years ago before some of the government's uh, um, uh, price controls set in. But over the past couple of years, it's been fairly steady at about 28 percent. Uh, a question here um, from uh, from Leonardo. Um, so, is there is there some scale at which uh, you see? Uh, you, is there a scale that you get to where these farmers might start to be able to pay what it what is sort of a market rate? Um, um, and or or uh, and, and I don't know. Leonardo, feel free to chime in. Uh, do, do you mean? That one acre fund becomes uh, sustainable without grants at that scale, or that the farmers, uh, or, or or that that the underlying loans will become kind of market rate loans. Um, so, but both, I guess. So, uh, what, what at what scale does one acre fund not rely on grants, and at what and is there a scale at which uh, this work does become more sort of commercially bankable, right? The 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 farmers can can just uh, take on uh, kind of normal market loans. So maybe while you're waiting for clarification from Leonardo, I could, I could just start yeah. uh, um, describing, describing the answer to that because it's, it's a yep. very difficult and complex one. Um, we're operating in, in, I think, what I would describe as maybe three tiers of countries. Um, at, at the lowest tier, you've got, you've got farmers that, that are, you know, extremely, extremely poor. And, and our transaction size in those countries might be as little as, as an average of $25. Um, it'll be very difficult for those farmers to ever be able to pay, um, you know, purchase the transaction, purchase the, the, the fertilizer and seed in such quality, in quanti excuse me, quantity, that would allow them to, um, you, know, you know, pay essentially um, a rate that allows us to be sustainable. Um, in other countries, however, you know we're we're close to we're close to sustainability, and we're we're getting closer each year. So the amount required uh, per per farmer of subsidy um, from a from a grant is actually going down, and that's a function really of two things. One is the farmers are able to to um, to use slightly more of their income to to buy um, high quality inputs, and the second thing is they operate on on larger quantities of land. And that's and that enables them to buy in larger and both those things enable them to buy in larger amounts, and so 
those countries that, that are that are on the you know have the larger land sizes and and the, the slightly less poor farmers, um, they they have an opportunity I think to become uh, sustainable as you might define it over time. Um, I think one acre fund will always will always need grants and and part of that's intentional because we know that that you have to provide these other services that Rick mentioned as well in order to in order to get the model to work properly. And um, you know, so I think that I think that it's not a question of grants really going away. It's it's allowing grants to be transformed such that um, they can provide even more benefit than they provide today. One one other comment, this is Greg here, that um, that that I just make is, you know, I feel like we as a, a sector. Um, all too often sort of fall into fall into the habit of of sort of trying to trace that path that that the sort of sustainable path in the long run will always be how do these interventions you know progress to a point where they can absorb commercial capital and and I think that we really need to push ourselves to sort of abandon that that construct that you know that that sort of proving out that these models can have the impacts that they that they intend to have and can do so in a sustainable way, you know. I think that the long term, you know, uh, the, the the long term sources of kind of scalable capital don't don't need to be commercial capital. There there are, you know, there are massive sort of development budgets, philanthropic budgets that are in search of the most efficient way to deliver these impacts to these communities. And so I, you know, I think that there are I think there are other pools of, of capital, and I, I think also, you know, that we as, as as a family office hope to, you know, hope to push other other you know other offices like like ours to, to sort of seeing that you know seeing that this impact can, can be can be scaled, and even if it doesn't mean you know generating um, you know generating large um, commercial returns over. Um, over time, you know, my my boss, the founder of Kenny Arts, Diane Eisenberg, always likes to say, you know, if if you're rich and all you do is get your get your money back, you're you're still you're still rich. So, um, you know, I I think that you know trying to trying to think about um, returns in that context is 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 important. Um, thanks. Yeah, I had one uh, one other question, which I think will be maybe the the last one here. Um, which I, I think kind of gets to the, the the core of what you know this discussion, which is um, a question around if if investors do provide a capital at a lower cost, how do they sort of ensure that what you're doing is driving deeper into impact, uh, you know, versus kind of capturing more of a more of a spread, uh, you, you know, kind of yourself. Um, and uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll turn this one to to Rick because you you kind of alluded to this earlier, Rick, which is you know, it's the, you call it a quid pro quo, right? I mean, you need to be able to then go back and articulate, well, here are these 60 social enterprises that are now, have now joined our pipeline, which were, were not in our pipeline earlier because we couldn't support them with our higher cost of capital, right? Uh, or, or be able to, you know, do what we're trying to do here today, which is um, um, really points to that, what, what that lower cost of capital enables you to do. And, um... In our case, uh, you know, because uh, we think about impact on the four dimensions that I described, 
you know, we welcome the due diligence and the, and the transparency around those. So, you know, for us, just because of the strategy that we've chosen, you know, that would that would mean um, what are we doing about broadening opportunity and how do we both prove that it's sustainable and measure it? Uh, what are we doing about inclusion? How are we thinking about that? How do we know it's working? Um, what, what is what scale is being delivered? Why do we believe that's attributable to the investments that we're making? And not only what is the intention about deeper impact of the outcomes, but over time, what is the feedback we're getting that suggests that we're on track? And, and Brian just gave a great example in terms of what, what Anchor Fund does. So from my perspective, I think the conversation that needs to happen between whether it's between a fund investor and one of our funds and us, or frankly, if it were between us and one acre fund, you know, in our, in our portfolio, I think the conversation is the same. You know, let's talk about the nature of the opportunity. Let's talk about the nature of the inclusion. Let's talk about the scale and let's talk about why it is this you know, lives are getting better. And um, so I, I think that, you know, to me, that's a more productive discussion than trying to trace the dollar through because money's all fungible. It really is about who's being served and what value is being created and how do we know. And I, I think that, that, uh, that that's part of the obligation of anybody who wants to say that they're impact led is to speak to that. Great, thank you. Um, well, I think I think we're we're here at a, right about uh, right about a time here. Um, so I, I want to just take a minute and, and thank you all. Um, and thank you, Greg, for joining, and thank you most of all to Brian and for for joining us and sharing their work. I mean, again, really exceptional, kind of exceptional top-notch top organization doing such difficult, um, deep impact work with at such scale and uh, with such a remarkable track record when it comes to the, the, the repayment rates and, and their ability to, to, to get capital back in, back in and back out. Um, so, uh, you know, we have a slide up here with their contact information, uh, invite anybody who wants to kind of continue the conversation to reach out to us or to them, and, uh, uh, and thanks again. Thanks, thanks, Brian, thanks, Rick, and we'll be in touch. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anair. Thank you, uh, everyone at Transform Finance, for giving us the opportunity. Thank you for joining us, and you will see there the information if you would like to get in touch and learn more about the work of the Investor Network. And thank you, Anair, for leading the conversation today. Very enlightening stuff. Thanks, everyone. Bye.